listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. Enjoy this exciting message from Senior Pastor Robin McMillan. We're doing, um, we're going to do a panel today. And as you uh, noticed on the overhead, um, it says Mark chapter 2, healing the whole man. Um, we're in the midst of a study of the book of Mark, and we're actually in chapter 2. And so what I want us to do is I'm going to read the first 12 verses, and then John Mark's going to set up the rest of the morning. And uh, here we go. Lord, bless us. Let's ask the Lord to help us today. How many of you need help? I need help. Actually, I have had a week or two of amazing revelation on a certain topic I'm not ready to talk about yet. And it all began when I told the Lord, Lord, I need help. I'm dumb as a brick. If you don't show me stuff, I just won't see it. Give me insight. Give me revelation. So let's pray on that basis today that we really do need help. I'll pray as though I were you and me. So, Father, we ask today for help. Lord, speak to us. Release power, presence, encouragement, insight, all those different things. Lord, um, we really are looking to you. We're, we're not just playing. We don't do this right, sometimes not even well. But you do all things well. So we're asking you to do those things. You do the best today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. This is uh, Mark chapter 2. Actually, this is Adam Fidel. I should have already introduced him. Let's give it up for Adam. Adam is a licensed marriage and family therapist or counselor and part of our church, and uh, he's just a great guy. We've enjoyed knowing uh, the Fidels here. Actually, I worked with your cousins for years. And uh, they were awesome people. So here we go. Mark chapter 2. Several days later, Jesus returned to Capernaum, and the news quickly spread that he was back in town. People say that was actually his rented house, which makes interesting reading. Soon there were so many people crowded inside the house to hear him that there was no room even outside the door. While Jesus was preaching the word of God, Four men arrived carrying a paralyzed man. But when they realized that they couldn't even get near him because of the crowd, they went up on top of the house and tore away the roof above Jesus' head. And when they had broken through, they lowered the paralyzed man on a stretcher right down in front of him. When Jesus saw the extent of their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, My son, your sins are now forgiven. This offended some of the religious scholars who were present, and they reasoned among themselves, quote, Who does he think he is to speak this way? This is blasphemy for sure. Only God himself can forgive sins. Jesus supernaturally perceived their thoughts and said to them, Why are you being so skeptical? Which is easier to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are now forgiven, or stand up and walk? But to convince you that the Son of Man has been given authority to forgive sins, I say to this man, stand up, pick up your stretcher, and walk home. Immediately, the man sprang to his feet in front of everyone and left for home. When the crowds witnessed this miracle, they were awestruck. 
They shouted praises to God and said, we've never seen anything like this before. Uh, oh. Go ahead. Okay. How many of you were here last week? Last week we had that awesome ministry time at the end. Um, I remember during that time I I had this thing working on me. And I remember as I was leaving, I ran into Adam. And I think what it was is a couple of weeks ago, maybe not last week, the week before, we had two very public suicides in the um, news. You know, And I remember sitting here thinking um, as we were praying, like there's something I'd really like to come up and say at the end, but there really wasn't time. And as I was leaving, I ran into Adam, and we sort of got into this conversation, and we started thinking about faith and wisdom. Last week, my dad here talked a lot about faith, and we actually prayed for people who were sick. You know, And I thought how important it is that we be a church that practices both faith and wisdom. You know, It's essential for me that Queen City would be a church that practices both faith and wisdom, that faith would not be an escape mechanism, and that wisdom wouldn't be a replacement for an experiential, visceral, physical trust in God. You know, and that we need to hold both of those and that faith and wisdom don't compete with one another. And you don't have to choose one over the other. You know, and so we want to talk a little bit about the wisdom side of faith and specifically what I want to talk about today or what we want to discuss today um, in uh, regards to faith and wisdom is emotional health. And if it sounds weird that we're talking about emotional health in church, that just shows you... <laughs> How off the grid we are with emotional health. Because churches, in my opinion, church is where you're supposed to talk about emotional health. Because when you talk about the fruit of the spirit, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, that sounds a lot like emotional health to me. Right? So first of all, I think there's a community aspect to faith. Let's look at the players. I want to call them characters, but they're not just characters. They're actual people in this story here with Jesus. But let's break them down into characters, right? We have Jesus... Right, obviously. And we have the man, the paralytic, in the bed. Right? Uh, then we have the crowd, and we have the men who carried the bed. And as I was walking out and I was talking to Adam, I was supposed to preach this Sunday, and I was really conflicted about it. Um, well, I mean, I guess everybody's busy. <laughs> but I had a busy week. And I was like, I don't know that I can really bring what this chapter deserves. You know, this is a really important chapter. And I was like, how am I going to have time to do this? And as I was leaving... We were having this conversation about emotional health, about faith and wisdom. And Adam was telling me how um, he actually works from this um, chapter. And I was like, wow, that's the chapter I'm supposed to be speaking on next week. This might be the Lord that we do this sort of panel discussion. you know. But you see these different players, Jesus, the man in the bed, the crowd, and the men who carried the bed. So Jesus, obviously, he healed the man, right? Jesus healed the man. But if you notice, it took the faith of many for the man to get healed. It took the faith of many for the man to get healed. First of all, it took the faith of Jesus. You know, we live by the faith of the Son of God. We don't live by our own faith. We live by the access that we have to his faith. Does that make sense? We live by access to his faith. So it's not about you figuring it out. It's about you receiving faith from the Lord. There's a lot we could say about that if we had time. Um, Second of all, I think it's obvious we have the faith of the man on the bed, right? It takes a lot of faith, especially if you're paralytic and you can't move. These people are carrying you 
and then they are carrying you up on the roof. Who's been up on the roof recently? I imagine the house wasn't as tall as our houses, but it's tall enough to get over six-foot people, right? And so the man is trusting, and he has enough faith for them to carry him up on the roof and to lower him down through the ceiling. So that man has faith because he let them do that, right? But then the men carrying the bed have faith. They're the ones who did the work. They picked up the bed and they carried it. They tore the roof off and they lowered it down, right? So it took the faith of many for this man to be healed. Now, did the crowd have faith? Maybe they did. Maybe they did, but this is the only man that um, got healed in, that listed in this situation. doesn't mean other people didn't get healed. I also, as a side note, I want to say there have been times I know in church when someone didn't get healed and someone accused that person of not having faith, and we don't believe that. You know, you can have faith and not get healed. Like, I don't understand it. It's not a one plus one equals two all the time. You know, the world is complicated. There's a lot of mystery and, you know, so I want to say there's, there's some shame and we don't believe that. But there is something about a corporate faith, about a community of faith that I think is powerful, right? So did the crowd have faith? Maybe they did. But what's the difference in you being part of the crowd and you being the man who gets healed? What's the difference? Is maybe the man who got healed had people around him who were willing to carry him. He had people who were willing to tear the roof off the house and lower him down to Jesus. So we talk about having a personal relationship with Jesus because you're the only one who can actually live your life. No one else can do that for you. But if there's a problem with our language concerning the doctrine of personal salvation, it's this. Jesus never intended for your faith to be something that was only between you and God. You see this from the very beginning, even before Jesus starts his ministry. John the Baptist is baptizing people in public. Because you're not baptized into a, a one relationship with God. You are baptized into a community. The body of Christ. You're baptized into the body of Christ. You enter into a body, you don't enter into a conversation with one invisible God. You know, if you think about it, all, everything God wants to teach you in that one-on-one relationship is how you relate to other people. And every time you want to talk to God, all he wants to do is talk about other people. So there really is not the old... I don't believe that the first century church had an idea of faith outside of the community of faith. I think that their idea of faith was that it was always a community thing and you don't just step into a relationship with God. You step into a larger relationship. And I think people have used this in the past to drum up volunteers and have used this in the past to create momentum with organizations but that's not what i'm talking about that can be an overflow of that relationship but i'm not using this to say you ought to come to church more that's not what i'm saying i'm but i am saying there is more to your faith than just you and god i'm almost done no you're good but from the beginning our faith was something that took place within the context of community family or the body And now there's a lot of baggage attached to that. I just talked about that. You know, but think about it. If you were an athlete, you would have a trainer or you'd have a team of doctors and trainers helping you do what you do. If you're a CEO, you have consultants and boards of advisors. If you are settling matters in court, you would have a legal advisor. If you're a musical artist, like I'm trying to be, you would have a producer or a production team or people that come alongside you who help you do what you do. And anywhere in life with anything that's important, we 
ask for help and we expect help. But why with the most important things in life do we often not ask for help or not expect any help at all? Or why is there a stigma around asking for help when it comes to the most important things about our lives, our inner life, our thought life, our emotional health? Why is there a stigma around that? How come we're allowed to ask for help in every other area, but there's something wrong with you if you ask for help with the most important thing about who you are? So it's a huge thing I want to do is to destigmatize the whole idea. If you need help, it's not because you're crazy. If you need help, it's because you're normal. <laughs> if you don't think you need help, then you might be crazy. <laughs> I don't know. I shouldn't. I'm not the counselor. I'm not. <laughs> I'm not don't listen to me. As, <laughs> I have no medical knowledge here. I'm not, not licensed. But these are mostly opinions, right? But in any important endeavor, we employ or bring alongside people who can help us. Right, but too often, we feel like our spiritual life, our inner life, emotional health is something that we have to do alone or figure out on our own. But God created us in a way that we require help. God has created us to need other people. This isn't weakness. This is the engineering of God. The very first thing that God said that was wrong was that it's not good that man would be alone. So there's a whole lot to unpack here, but this is as much as I want to get to today. Number one, God is interested in your emotional health. Emotional health and wholeness takes work. It's cultivated as fruit of the spirit. Emotional and spiritual health doesn't happen by accident. Emotional and spiritual health takes a team, community, and family. And my dream is that QCC that we would be a community of whole people, people who rejoice in the miracles, the faith. We can't make the sunshine or the rain come, but we also are willing to do the work of planting the seeds and tending the garden. So it's not a works mentality. It's like 90% miracle, but that 10% of really hard work, it's our job. You know, because we, we don't, we deny the miracle and we don't plant the seeds. We don't plant the seeds and say, how come God's not doing his part? But it's not true. God's always doing his part. He's doing the part you couldn't possibly do. He's causing the sun to shine and the rain to fall. And all you have to do is plant the seeds. Don't say all you have to do is plant seeds. That's not necessarily easy work. But anyway, that's how I wanted to set up this conversation this morning. Does that sound okay with you guys? Is that exciting or interesting? Mm-hmm. Yep. I'm going to pass on to my dad here real quick. Well, when we began to study the book of Mark, we... Um I believe it was Al Sergal suggested we read Tim Keller's book. I think, was it called Jesus the Christ? It's over my back. I forget the title sometime, but uh, it's, it's just a tremendous study. And so I want to use some of Tim Keller's insights because they really speak directly to what John Mark's talking about. Now, having, having personally come from a, a Presbyterian background who never prayed for the sick other than in some sort of general generic um, way, when I got touched by God and when I got filled with the Holy Spirit, when I realized there were miracles available, that God still spoke, that um, all of that, my reaction was to go way, way, way whole hog towards, say, physical healing and not pay quite so much attention to what maybe the more evangelical people would be doing, which would be about relational and emotional things. And so one of the things that people used to say was the most amazing healing anyone could ever have is 
to be saved and have a change of life. And I thought that was sort of hokey. But the longer I've lived, the more I've come to realize the true miracle is when you find someone and their life is really changed as opposed to, say, people who just sort of give lip service to, to being, being a believer. And so when we look in this particular story, we find um, this, this poor man being lowered down through the roof. He can't move. And they come to the house because they are thoroughly and totally convinced Jesus can heal that man. And so when Jesus first speaks to him, and, and these are some of Tim Keller's observations, but I think they're so, so important, um, it doesn't seem at first as though Jesus understands what the paralyzed man needs. He should have said, rise up and be healed, but instead he says, your sins are forgiven. And um, without going into great detail here, the point Tim Keller makes is that if you have a goal or a desire or a need that if it's met or when it's met, you will be happy for the rest of your life, you are mistaken. Now, that, that, that sounds harsh in a way because you may need a physical healing, but it's not harsh if you understand that you can get all your specific questions, needs met, and still be empty and angry and frustrated and bitter inside. I've actually heard Jim Carrey, the, the comedian who's made millions of dollars, say he wished everyone could be a millionaire so they could see how empty it actually really is. So one of the things Tim Keller says this, he says that the point Jesus was making is that the main problem in your life is not what's happened to you, not what people have done to you, or not what you think your main problem is. But your main problem is the way you have responded to your particular situation. Ironically, that's empowering, he says. Why is that empowering? It's because you can't do very much about what's happened to you, about what other people are doing, but you can do something about yourself. And so Tim's book, and I think the Lord too goes on to say that, the, the real issue that needs to be dealt with in your life is not just your physical condition, it's your sin condition. And by sin, he's not referring to you looked at something you shouldn't have looked at, you lied or you stole something. It's the condition of soul where you're rebelling against God, you're living without reference to him, you are saying, I can live exactly the way I want. And Jesus is saying, no, you can't. And that's your main problem. So, Tim says this about the paralytic. In his heart, he's almost surely saying, if only I could walk again, then I would be set for life. I'd never be unhappy. I would never complain. If I could only walk, everything would be right. And Jesus is saying, my son... You're mistaken. That may sound harsh, but it's profoundly true. 
Jesus says, when I heal your body, if that's all I do, you'll feel you'll never be unhappy again, but wait two months, four months, the euphoria won't last, the roots of the discontent of the human heart go deep. So the point to be made here is you need a Savior. And the Savior you need is not the answer to a particular part of your condition. It's a person you can relate to who can forgive your sin, never leave you, never forsake you, and express to you the kind of heart and care and father everybody needs, whether they know it or not. Jesus needs to be your Savior, not your particular answer. Now, let me say this. The fact that we thought getting our deepest wish would heal us, would save us, that was the problem. We had to let Jesus be our Savior. Now, I prayed for two sick people over the phone last week. They both got healed. One over the phone, one in public. But the person I prayed for in public wasn't there. It was this guy's daughter. They got about healed. I am all about healing. I'm all about physical healing. I'm all about seeing people fully restored. My problem is I just don't know how it happens or how it works. And I've been doing this for 40 years. But one thing I do know, more people are healed physically when we pray for them than when we ignore that they have a condition. And more people are made whole emotionally when we pay attention and they pay attention to what it is they really need and take steps to change that situation. Now, with all of that, I would like to turn this over to Adam Fidel and let him share with us. So uh, a couple of things um, I'd like to do. Uh, so this, uh, John Mark referenced that this passage was significant for me in the work that I do. And so I want to tell you the story of how that came to be. Uh, and then I want to also talk a little bit uh, from a personal standpoint of how my life fits into this. And then I'd also like to talk about one of the things that John Mark and I talked about was uh, the stigma around mental or emotional health. Um, I want to say something quick about that first, though, because I think we hear it as mental health. Uh, in the news, it's mental health. From most counselors, it's mental health. From psychologists, it, it's all mental health. I think it's more emotional health. And the reason I say that, too, is I think... Uh, if any of you, well, if any of you are counselors, we go through school and uh, very little, and I went to a seminary, uh, so I, I got, I think, a more complete kind of training uh, that integrated psychology and a theology school. Um, but the idea around it just being mental health, uh, to me, that says it disconnects, it's, it's focused up here and it's disconnecting from your heart, and I don't think that's the right way to think about it. Uh, if these two things are not connected... Uh, if your right and your left brain are not connected, then you, you can't be a whole person in terms of, you know, the physical and the emotional and the biological. Uh, so I say, I say emotional health, not mental health. Um, so just wanted to talk about that for a second. So the corner, uh, I was reading Mark II when I was going through grad school, and this was 2010 was when I began grad school. Um, and I was reading this passage really early one morning, uh, and I love the image of uh, these guys wanting to help this guy uh, get healed. Uh, and I started this kind of dialogue uh, in my head of, 
um, the difference between being able to care for people and cure people, and then coming to the realization that even if I'm a really good counselor, I can't cure anybody. Uh, that's Jesus's job. And so I started looking at it from, all right, well, how do I play a role if this is my career and this is what I like doing? Uh, how do I play uh, a legitimate role in helping move people closer to the truth of Jesus uh, and what he offers? Um, and so I started looking at it from, well, I get to carry a corner of the mat. Uh, I get to carry a corner of anyone that comes into my office, whether that's a family, a married couple, kids, an individual, it doesn't matter. Um, and I love, being, I love the image of being able to, uh, I get to carry this corner, and that's my responsibility, uh, and it's a privilege. Um, but then that means there's three other corners that aren't being carried. And what does that look like for people that come in uh, and need some kind of emotional guidance or uh, to actually move closer to Jesus? And so there needs to be other people. And so one of the things that I do with the clients that I work with is uh, in the first two sessions, I ask my clients, uh, who are your people? Where's faith in your life? Do you have a community? Uh, and where does, where's your family in the midst of this? Because so, for me, those other corners, uh, it can be me as a counselor. Uh, it needs to be a community or a pastor. Uh, it needs to be your friends and it needs to be your family, some combination of that. Um, so that you actually can get the healing that you need because uh, it's kind of a funny image because if, if I'm the only one, if you come into my office and you need help, you're looking for some kind of guidance. Um, if I'm the only one carrying your corner, I might be able to pull you up on the roof. Maybe I can pull back the roof uh, on the house. But if I got to drop you down by myself, you're probably going to get hurt along the way more than you were <laughs> anticipating getting hurt. So like the, literally using the image of the metaphors, like there needs to be other people. Um, and so from a counseling perspective, like I see my role as carrying one corner. Uh, I, I get to pick up that corner of the mat and help families or individuals or married couples move forward. Um, and so it's really important to have a team. What John Mark and, and Robin have already said is, uh, you know, there's kind of a running joke. Uh, I lived in L.A. for eight years, and uh, it's kind of funny, but it, it's kind of what this alludes to is uh, if you don't have your counselor, your nutritionist, your acting coach, and your yoga teacher, like you're not working hard enough, right? It's, it's this idea of like, it's kind of silly, um, but there's something about that. People, we need people. Uh, I don't meet married couples who make it alone. And for those of you that are married and have families, uh, I would believe that if we were to ask you, uh, do you and your wife think you're raising your kids uh, on your own? Or are you doing the best you can without the influence and help and guidance and love of other people in your community? And I would believe most of you would say no. And so there's a natural part of, like, we need other people. Uh, we need people that will help carry corners for us. Um, so then I want to talk a little bit about, that's kind of the image from where I'm working with, with my clients. Uh, but I do want to talk about um, going beyond uh, the healing, the condition of the paralytic. Because uh, for a long time, I was like, oh, that'd be great. Like, I'd read that, and he got healed. Uh, and he could walk, and he was flexible, and he could run, and he could do all these things that he could never do. And as we've been reading this this week, um, and Jesus calls, he, he identifies his sin first. It's calling him beyond what his condition is. Um, and so from, I want to share a couple personal stories. Uh, so by the time I was 25, I had been to 17 funerals. Uh, people ask me why I do what I do. And uh, I grew up in a fairly chaotic household, um, avoided a lot very resentful, very bitter, thought I could do a lot on my own. Uh, by the time I was 25, I had been to 17 funerals. 
uh, the, the 17th funeral, uh, I had moved to L.A. In, at, uh, in February, end of January 2008. In uh, May of 2008, uh, the girl that I had been dating was actually murdered. So that was the 17th uh, funeral that I had, would have gone to by the time I was 25. And I tell you that because um, of those 17, two of them were murders. Uh, about three of them were suicides. And the rest were either natural death or, um, you know, we had a handful of kids when I was in high school that were killed in car accidents and things like that. So um, this was, I had just met Jesus when I was 22. So at this point, I'm 25. Um, and so the reason I think this is so meaningful is because um, what, what I did for the better part of three years after that happened, uh, I was in L.A. and some of my best friends had no idea that that had happened. Um, and so when I look back at that, um, there was a lot of me that had become bitter and resentful and angry. Uh, there was a lot of shame involved with that. Uh, and I spent a lot of time trying to avoid that. Um, and it wasn't until I started to confront that. And I think that's what he's calling out of this paralytic. He, he healed what was physically everybody could see was wrong with him. Um, but the paralytic needed to be confronted with uh, what was moving him further and further away from the character of Jesus. And I think that's what Jesus is calling out of this guy. He says, you need to confront your sin. And the sin is the bitterness and the shame and the uh, resentment and, and all of that. And so um, part of this is uh, moving towards being able to confront pain. And that's one of the things that I try and work on with clients. Um, so that kind of leads into the stigma part of it a little bit. And so uh, I was looking this week at, so the definition of stigma uh, is a mark of shame, disgrace, or dishonor. Um, and I was thinking about that and I was like, well, what's the most important thing somebody can do if they're depressed or anxious or afraid or resentful or anything? And like, the first part is naming it. The first part is actually identifying that, hey, this exists. Um, because stigma only has power when you run from it. And, and as soon as you, it's like you bring it to the light. So like, as soon as you say what it is that's going on inside of you, you actually can, you can do something with it. Um, there's a, uh, psychiatrist, uh, a Christian psychiatrist, uh, his name is Kurt Thompson. He wrote a great book, uh, it's called, uh, Anatomy of the Soul. And he has a line in there, um, that I think is very relevant to even this passage. And it, it, uh, he says, um, to- or, uh, sin hunts us on the plane of our toxic shame. Mm. Um, and so I, I think of that, all right, so when you, I think of sin, the resentment that I had, the bitterness that I had, the anger that I had, I was running from it. Uh, and you will never be able to be free of something as long as you are running from it. So you must confront it. And once you confront it, you can contend with it. And when you contend with it, whatever that is, then you can own it. And I often ask people when they, when they come into my office and they, they disclose some of the most painful or the darkest parts of their life, Every time you ask him, how do you feel saying that out loud? Acknowledging what, that something's got a hold of you or coming after you uh, every time, uh, well, it feels kind of relieving. There's pain that's going to come with it because you have to confront it. You have to fight with it. Um, but as long as you're willing to do that, and if you're willing to do that, then you actually can own it. And then the other question I ask folks is when you own the hardest parts of your life, when you own the hardest parts of your story, the darkest parts of your story, what can they do to you? And the answer is nothing. When you own what it is that you're struggling with, it, it literally loses its power. And I know that there are scriptures that point directly to that. Um, 
So in terms of confronting your, uh, the stigma around emotional health, how do you get rid of the stigma? You confront it. You go right at it. Uh, and there's no other way to do it. Um, I wrote, we can only hide from what is hunting us, from us, hunting us for so long. At some point, we must confront it, contend with it, own it. And when you own your story, what can it do to you? Um, and I think Jesus called us to him as Savior. He has also called us to him in character, to be like him, to aim as he would. If we are running from anything, we cannot become our best. And in return, we do not give our best. And I think when I go back to how long it took me uh, to start engaging some of the harder parts of my life, um, it wasn't that I was, I wasn't a disaster. I wasn't like, I mean, I was going to school and I, I was, from the outside, I was doing well. Um, but one of the things that continues to even kind of come back to me often is like, was I giving anybody my best? Was I giving anybody the best version of me? And so if you're being hunted by something, you're never going to be able to give anyone your best. You may, again, you may be polite and you may be, um, you know, have some wisdom and some faith, but it, it, there's more in you, uh, if you will confront what it is that's coming after you and turn around and face it. And so, um, Part of that is, you know, the question is, uh, I would imagine who in here wants to give your family and your community, your coworkers, the people in your neighborhood, do you want to give them your best? And if so, then you have to ask yourself, all right, is there anything holding me back from doing that? And then you'll, you'll know very quickly what it is you need to confront. Um, so we'll start there and then. Andy, come here a second. I have more to say, but we can. Andy had something on his cheek, and he's trying to... <laughs> I'm just up here because I look good. <laughs> Happy Father's Day to me. <laughs> when Adam, when you were talking about naming something that you struggle with, I think for most of us, that's the hardest part, right? The hardest part is admitting or... Or uh, I mean, just for me, I can say that the thought of saying out loud something that I'm struggle that I struggle with, it instantly creates fear in my mind, and that fear keeps me from moving forward into that healing place. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It's like everything that you're talking about. I, I'm like, I want that, but for most of us, it's hard to know how to get there and. Um, it made, it made me think of a passage that I heard from Brennan Manning in his book, Ragamuffin Gospel. He was talking about how difficult Protestant Christians had compared to our Catholic brethren, because Catholics have this place called the confession booth where they can go and say out loud the thing that's been, you know, hunting them on the, on the plane of shame or whatever, you know. And he was noting how many Protestant Christians, because we have a culture that looks, stigmatizes naming the thing that we're struggling with, we, we go years burying things. And, uh, and, and that's the thing 
that really ends up crippling us the most, isn't it? It's those secret things that keep us from becoming the person that we actually are. And um, so um, I, think, I think for my personal journey, here's something you should know. Everybody is as messed up as you are. And so knowing that's important because a lot of times we don't share what's really going on with us because we, we are assessing that the person that we're walking with has their stuff together. And, um, you know, not everybody is a complete disaster, but, you know, we all have things that we have to work on, don't we? And um, I think... Uh, what was the part that you wanted me to talk about? My heart. Yeah. Well, something you, about my heart. You, as as I know about you. Yeah. Here's what I know about you. You are bold. Right. You're aggressive. You have faith. You mm-hmm. have to because you have a huge family. Yeah. Uh-huh. yeah. And you have done things that were hugely disappointing. And it affected you as yes. you and I have talked, and you've actually mentioned it here among us yes. that you you sort of lost your that not lost your faith in Jesus, not lost your faith. You don't believe the gospel, yeah, but lost that faith to really go after it again, yeah. And I know the Lord's been restoring. I think He's restored that, and He, he continues to restore. And yeah. I just thought that's such a yeah, Amen, a great part of your story. So, so there's there's all kinds of things that that mess with us. You had these 17 funerals. Like, that is, that is real. That is like stuff that's not vague. There's something very uh, challenging when, you're, when you've come face-to-face with death on one, one level or another. Uh, but an, another, another thing that we face with as people, as human beings, not just as Christians, but as human beings, we, we come up against disappointment. And a lot of times disappointment, um, it doesn't take you out for a week or two. It can take you out for years. Exactly. And I know, uh, Matt, Matt Midtune and I were talking about this last week. We, he, he, he made the statement. He said, I actually don't know how people who don't go to church can make it in their lives. And we hear a lot of bad things about the church in, in, in culture. And a lot of it is, is a fair assessment of the ridiculousness of a lot of the church. But my testimony is that the, I would not be who I am as a human being without the witness of the church and without the help of the church. It's been so formative in my life. So the four corners that Adam is talking about, one of those corners is professional therapy. You have to have that. You should have that, especially if you're in a disaster zone in your life and there's nobody in the other circles of your life that have the capacity to deal with what you're going through. Okay, 
But the majority of your life is not lived with a mental health professional. The majority of your life is lived with other people, your spouse, your friends, your mother, your father, your siblings. Um, so I guess, I guess what I'm saying is, is that as hard as relationship is with other people, as hard as relationship is with your family, with your church, with all of these other things, my view is the worst thing that you can do is isolate away from relationships. Come on. Because in the same way that relationships do injure you at times, it is also the thing that can ultimately bring you into healing. And I... I I think that, you know, even John Mark, even having this idea last week and kind of fighting for this conversation, it is it. What we're really fighting for is being a community of people who are brave enough and strong enough to be vulnerable with one another and to be brave enough to carry another person's vulnerability. Because I think what happens is this. If I knew that I could tell you whatever I was going through without you projecting your shame and horror onto me, the likelihood of me getting rid of that thing that's keeping me down goes way up. Mm. Now, the tricky part is, is that we don't want to have like a lifelong vomit fest on each other and just like, <laughs> like spend the rest of our lives just regurgitating, you know, stuff right that's why we have adam in our life adam adam helps us he he helps us work through but segue so let me mention one thing too one of the things that would help people who come to this church is if they recognize that we're not a trophy case church we're a workshop church now what that means is me, us, whoever, may say something that really uh, makes you mad. Or it's not as holy or righteous as you may hope it would be. Or it's just somebody said something they shouldn't have said representing us, and it doesn't represent us at all. And I'm, I'm fine with that because I've been in those other kind of churches and I, I'm not good enough to be there, but I'm good enough to be here because you don't have to be good enough. But what we're not saying is, therefore, live a mediocre life with no goal or ideal, and I use ideal in the right way, of being a completely whole, functional powerful person. But the way you get there is not by acting like you are there and refusing to deal with the things that keep you from that. It's having open, honest relationships with the Lord and with other people. Sort of a current cultural hero is Jordan Peterson. And one of the things he says is a clinical... um, a a clinical psychologist who's had 50,000 hours of helping people one-on-one is that you should should try to find friends that want you to do as well as you yourself want to do. 
and that you should be that kind of friend. And so I just think that's part of what we're trying to develop here um, as a culture, a, a culture of, of honesty and grace and giving people opportunities to develop. I just, can I say something real quick? Yep. Okay. I, just real quick, and then I move on. But I, um, I don't like it when um, you could, I think you can see probably seven different streams of church in the world today, or different groups could identify with one of these seven streams. And I think that each of these streams has something from the Lord for the body of Christ. And not one is greater than the other, in my opinion. So I really, I don't like it when people come in and put down other streams of uh, other denominations, other types. I don't like that. But I feel like it's okay to talk about your own. You know, it's like other people can't put down your family, but you can. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Hey, wait a minute. And <laughs> Where is this going? I'm not, but listen, <laughs> that, that is, so I'm saying that's real. I'm saying I'm not saying this to be critical. I'm saying this is a judgment on myself. All right. Oh, I'm placing myself in this category, but I come from more of the charismatic world, which I think is great and really carries something from the Lord. Right. But I, if I had to say, if if there's one uh, criticism I have of the stream that I've come from and I've gotten so much from, is that it tends to be a heavily um, avoidance type culture mm. a culture of avoidance you know we we tend to avoid things through um awesome experiences and i believe in experiential faith you know we tend to avoid even the whole idea of salvation so listen i believe in salvation i think it's important and awesome but my greatest dream for my children is not that they wouldn't die my dream for my kids is not that they wouldn't die my dream isn't that my my dream isn't, my greatest dream isn't that I would save my children. I don't want them to die because I want them to be whole people and live beautiful, full lives. And we get focused on this idea of salvation. And really salvation is like the beginning. Salvation is not God's goal for you. It's a gate. It's a gate for you. Salvation is an opportunity for you to become a whole person. It's not God's end game. It's like his opening moves, right? But we like to, we can avoid doing the hard work of becoming who we are called to be. Not who we're called to be. We can avoid the hard work of becoming who we are by dwelling on these types of issues sometimes and avoiding the hard work, you know? Um, if you look in, if you look at scripture, you see in the wilderness, God was very visible and apparent. And the more they got into the promised land. The more promise they had, the more their promises were fulfilled, the less you saw God. Not that God wasn't there, but the more the work fell on the people. Because as you grow, you have to carry on more and more of your own responsibility because God's purpose for you is that you would become the most incredible person that you already are. You know what I'm saying? It's yeah, not that he, God doesn't want to do everything for you because if, then you won't become who you are. If you're 40 years old and asking God or feeling like God should lead you to brush your teeth, you got some issues. Yeah. Yeah. In other words. Anyway, you, I just, I just wanted to say, I just, <laughs> I just want to say that some of these issues, I think we get too caught up in, you know, like my favorite definition of sin is what doesn't work. We get focused on sin. Why is my life awesome? I am not sinning. But are you doing what works? It's like you're avoiding these key little things that you see in the scripture, but 
Are you actively pursuing what's good? Because God's point, God's goal in your life, once again, is not that you wouldn't sin. His goal is that you would do <laughs> the beautiful, awesome things that you were created to do. You know? So I think we tend to have a negative mindset looking at these things. I don't know where I was going. I got distracted. It's a toothbrush. You were toothbrush. I got distracted by the tooth. Anyway, I'm, I'm going to hand it back over to Adam. So uh, I want to say one thing about, um, and it was a point that Andy made. Uh, oh, in terms of it was carrying such a, a good point, it was. Um, you know, um, um, when so it was connected to. Now I'm losing my thought here. Sorry, right. uh, it was connected to um, being a good friend. I may not find it, so I'm just going to say something else. Um, so if. In terms of the people in your life that are carrying corners, um, whether it's a counselor or your friends or your family, part of it is being wise enough to recognize, like, are they actually calling the best out of you? And I would say this from a, an emotional or from a counseling perspective. Uh, if you've gone to a counselor or you are going to a counselor and you don't actually believe they're having you confront, like, legitimate issues in your life and they're not actually calling you to it. Now, it's in a kind way and sometimes maybe it depends on who you're seeing. Um, then find another counselor. Because it would be the same thing as uh, aligning yourself with your friends and people who say you're friends who aren't going to tell you the truth or call you to something better. And so the counselor needs to be that role in your life as well too. Um, or I don't think they're actually like, I would question what they're actually trying to help you do. Uh, and if that's not confront the, the harder parts of your life, then I'm not sure what it is that you, why else you would be working uh, with them. Um, Another thing I want to say just about the, the sin comment, I mean, he goes beyond, again, Jesus called the, he wanted this guy to go beyond the sin was, was in his life, not just his condition, right? Again, he, he was able to walk. Uh, and, and Jesus was, he said, as Tim Keller pointed out and Robin mentioned, that um, it's going to go beyond that. And I think part of it is like, well, how do you know if you're sinning? Well, does your life and your character and your mind and your heart, is it moving in the direction of Jesus? Is it aimed toward him? And if it's not, then... My understanding of that, that would be sin. It's anything that's missing the mark. And if the mark is Jesus himself going towards him, then that needs to be the clear aim. And so anything, uh, so use the fruit of the spirit. So any of, and I don't, I'm going to, all of them, um, uh, use that as a mark. Is your life, is, is the way that you're interacting with yourself and with people uh, and with God, is, are those the things that can be seen and experienced in your life? And if not, then you're, you're missing something. And that's not, a judgment, it's just like, there has to be a collective response of like, we need to be giving our best and we want to give our best to the people around us, which means you're going to have to confront things that are unpleasant. Um, I'll stop there. Do you have some? I got a couple of practical yep. questions for you. One is, you know, the, the goal with church is that there would be a community, but you walk into church and it's not like instant community, like just add water. And you have family, right? So how do we build these people into our lives? Like how do we um, how do we do what we're talking about on a practical level? Because people in the room are obviously in a million different places sure. in their lives, right? Sure. Um, well, so it would, it would be the, I would say, use the same, practically the same thing that if, if you know that you need help or you know that your life is not uh, where you would want it to be, um, then you go to a counselor, right? Like, that's why people call me. It's like something in my life's not working. Something's off. So, like, I need help. So part of it would be, like, if you look around the room from from being a part of this community, is like, well, 
can you say that you have friends in this community, right? And, and if not, then part of it is like there is an intentionality and there is a responsibility just like a client comes into my office. Like they have to be willing to participate in the process. And we need to be willing as a community to participate in the process of actually creating community. And so how do you do that? Uh, the first person I ever hung out with in this community, uh, I think was Mike Dickerman. I just went up to him one day. He was sitting out in the lobby. And I said, hey, I'm Adam. You want to hang out? And he was like, sure. You want to hang out? So we got, where is he? He's back there. Right? <laughs> so I, I don't know any other way to do it. Right? Um, I know the first time that we got to spend some time with Andy and Amy, Tanil and I said, well, who, who do we not know that we want to hang out with? And so we kind of hunted you guys down at the end of a service one day and you barged into we, my life Adam. Uh, you know and so we went we i don't i mean I, I know that i don't know how there's nothing maybe that wise in that but it's like all right well like if you like invite somebody like literally you have to be the one that is responsible for your how your relationships build and form and the people that are carrying your corners so part of it is like go find those people and so just look around the room and if if you're like, well, I don't know anybody here. Like the next person you make eye contact with, say, hey, let's go do. Like I don't. That's really practical. I wish it was. Take responsibility. Wait a second. Are you t- saying take responsibility, responsibility? for your own relationships? You. <laughs> I'm Are out. You saying our lives belong to us in that? That's right. It's up to us to do something about our well-being. Yes. yes. Um, and I. Yes. So here. <laughs> but look. So I even. That's my stance too. Um, when I'm uh, working with clients, if somebody comes into my office and they say, well, so someone else says that I should be here until they actually see what it is they need to come talk to me about or work through as a problem in their life, I tell them to like go live their life. And when they're actually confront, ready or con- re- ready and willing to actually deal with whatever they need to deal with, then come see me. Because I think there's a responsibility in friendship too. It's like uh, we can't save people. And I think that goes back to John Mark's idea about like his, his idea is not to keep his kids safe. We have two kids, my wife and I, and we have another one on the way. I'm not trying to teach my oldest son to be safe. I'm actually trying to teach him to be strong. And I got that from Jordan Peterson. That makes a lot of sense. Because he's going to go out and confront a world that I have very little, if any, control over. And so what does he need to be able to do? And like that's for my three-and-a-half-year-old. So like I would think that that applies pretty, uh, you know, pretty well to us as adults in the room. Um, so part of it is like, all right, we'll go out and be strong. Well, how do you be, how do you become stronger? Well, you have to confront the things that you're afraid of. I don't, you know, so that's, you got another question? <laughs> no, that's great. That's great. Um, yeah, let me read one verse. In the context of wisdom, uh, I had a couple of verses here in Proverbs 3. Um, because that's really what we're talking about. We're, if, if we automatically knew how to do life well, we would all be doing a whole lot better. Can we all agree there? And so what do we need? We need to know some things we don't know so that we can do some things we haven't done so that things can get better. Is everybody following that little simple logical step? Those things are called wisdom. Who has wisdom? God has wisdom. And people that have gotten wisdom from God, but basically God has wisdom. Here's the priority he puts on it. This is Proverbs 3.17. The ways of wisdom are sweet, always drawing you into the place of wholeness. 
Seeking for her brings the discovery of untold blessings, and she is the healing tree of life to those who taste her fruits. And another verse, those who find true wisdom obtain the tools for understanding the proper way to live, for they will have a fountain of blessing pouring into their lives. So, yep. So I guess the beginning of this conversation was, it had to do with Anthony Bourdain and Kate, Kate Spade, um, you know, the tragedies around their suicides. Yeah. And wow. to me, those two individuals represent people who, who look like they're doing well, who were not doing well internally. And um, just, just to, to wrap all this up, and, and I, I do not mean to oversimplify the process of, of getting, uh, getting yourself into a place of emotional health, but the beginning steps are actually simple. And uh, it, it can start with um, finding a friend who can help you finding somebody that you can trust build or build start building a trust relationship with and we're committed to this at queen city we we want this for each other and um in in the spring we 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 did our first jump off into small groups home groups and we just met with our home group leaders a couple of weeks ago just to kind of debrief over the our our first um experiment with that and and honestly, guys, it was just an incredible testimony, uh, just the amount of, of folks that got connected with other people that they had never really gotten to know before. It was just a, it was a tremendous success is what I'm saying. So we are going to be starting those up again in the fall. I think we had seven groups in the spring. We're going to have to probably double that just hearing from everybody. We're going to we you know, we're, we're going to create space for everybody. OK. Um, but also through these summer months, that's why Stuart put together um, all of those activity uh, points. Because what we really feel like is that's how people get to know each other. They get to know each other. You, you start a relationship by doing something together. It's not always the case, but, um, you know, it, it, it can start there, you know. So, and then obviously you are... Uh, prepared to give free counseling for three years for each person in this church. Yep. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. That. Yeah. Forever. Um, yeah. Forever. Forever. I'm as long as I'm alive. Two. I'm on year two with Adam. <laughs> well, one thing I I thought, and we'll we'll unless you have something, we'll close with this. One of the things we try to do is provide opportunities for people to meet each other. We can provide the opportunities. You got to do the other part. And if we provide the opportunities and you don't take them, I really don't feel bad about that, about my role in it. I try to provide the opportunities. Um, and if you look at what we do, there are men's meetings, there are women's meetings, there are home groups. We actually, another aspect, we pray for people at the end of each service. We have what Stuart came up with, those 10 or 11 different opportunities this summer. Um, Adam has had a number of um, meetings, like four-week meetings designed for couples. He's going to do that again. We have this young adult, uh, young lady's book study. We've had others before. But the, po- the point is 
take advantage of different opportunities to begin or continue or increase uh, the kind of relationships that uh, you have opportunity for. Yeah, so those would all be, in one perspective, those would all be corners that need to be carried. So have again, you have to, I think the paralytic asked those guys to pick him up, right? Like there was a responsibility on his part too. They didn't just walk by and see him because then my question would be the other 300 people waiting around the house, how come they didn't pick him up? I think he asked those four guys and they said, okay. So part of it is the responsibility of when, when opportunity is in front of you is actually, actually take it. Um, we'll have more details uh, soon, but in August, um, a lot of these summer events end, to my knowledge, in July. And so in August for four weeks, what I'm going to do is I'm putting together um, it's four different weeks that will focus on different elements of marriage. Uh, one of the things will be an intimacy training that I've done here twice. Um, it's an experiential exercise for married couples to go through. Uh, most people, I do it with uh, in counseling as well with couples and with premarital. Um, and then uh, We'll have more details. So there'll be four weeks. One will be intimacy training. Uh, I'm working on doing one around Enneagram for couples um, and having somebody, a licensed therapist, come in that's a friend of mine uh, who is more familiar with Enneagram and trained in it to actually guide us in a conversation. And then one week will be on the, around the uh, idea of attachment theory, uh, which is a theory that I, I kind of practice from. Uh, and then the fourth one will look like some kind of dinner uh, at the end of the month for married couples. So... Um, We'll have more details with that maybe in the next two weeks, and then that way it'll give you guys some time. You can ask questions, and, and we'll be able to get it all organized and planned out. Okay, folks. Was this helpful? Great, 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 great. Awesome. I could have said all this. It just wouldn't have been as good. And uh, No, actually, I couldn't have said all of it, but praise the Lord. Um. I thought about this. Any of you who do not have fathers or could not see your father and are missing your father, if you will come see me, I will be nice to you as a father. And if there's anyone here um, and you uh, have dealt with manic depression or de- that sort of um, condition, I feel like the Lord does want to heal you. If you will also let me know about that at some point, and I will be glad to pray for you. And we have uh, healing and prayer teams at the end of the service. If you would come over right on this side, they will be glad to pray minister to you. So let's give it up for Adam Fidel today. Thank you, Jesus. And um, have a great week. Thanks for being here. We love you guys. Go and sin no more. You've been listening to the Queen City Church Sermon of the Week. For more information on this message and other resources, visit queencity.church.